It is Monday, October the 24th, 2022. Welcome into episode 59 of Tone of the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It's a production of John Boy Media. David Cohn, James Smythe, and myself, Justin Shackle. This and every episode throughout the postseason is presented by Rapsodo. And we have our World Series matchup. Uh, the Houston Astros and the Philadelphia Phillies, they're going to be meeting in the Fall Classic beginning with Game 1 on Friday. The Phils top the Padres in five games in the NLCS. The Astros complete the sweep of the Yankees in the ALCS. That's where we're going to be spending much of our time here this episode. We're going to do a full World Series preview later in the week, but the Yankee season ending on Sunday night, some fresh reaction here. And guys, this is just my opinion. Injuries aside for the New York Yankees, you could say um, they, they competed with what they had, I think, Certain decisions exasperated their current state. They were outclassed by the Astros in the ALCS in more ways than one, in my opinion. What about you guys? Well, it's it's true. I mean, it's there's no two ways about it. As disappointing as it is for Yankee fans that uh, you know Houston was the better team. But with that being said, it, it still felt like the Yankees could have made it much more interesting, and we're close to doing so in the first two games and. You know, I've said this before, you get the starters early in their, in their starts is the best way to do it. And they kind of had both the Houston starters in the first two games in that position early in the game. Verlander and Framber Valdez both were kind of struggling at the beginning of their start. So there were missed opportunities. But once they settled in, uh, it, was, it was lights out. And that's generally what happens with frontline starters is if you don't get them early uh, and you allow them to settle in, then, you know, it's going to be lights out. And that's exactly the way it worked in the first two games. The series ended up being 18 runs for the Astros and nine for the Yankees. That said, three of the four games were pretty close, with game one being four to two, game two being three to two, and then the finale in game four being six to five. So three of the four games decided by one or two runs, which puts, which puts uh, several things under the microscope in the ALCS. David, how much of a factor was like the carryover from the effectiveness of Verlander and Valdez because we saw Javier maybe not his sharpest but obviously extremely effective with his game plan and then Lance McCullers was on the ropes early in game four on Sunday night didn't see too many of his curveballs was really effective with with his slider uh and, and his changeup as he settled in more and more but is there that carryover effect when certain pieces of the rotation help out the other pieces and get into the psyche of the opposing lineup I, I guess that's that's accurate to put it that way. Uh, you know, James brought this up before. It's you know everybody talks about the Yankees, the nature of the uh, of the lineup. There's too much swing and miss. You know, it's a classic argument we hear every every postseason. You need to play small ball. You got to make contact. Put the ball in play. Well, the Yankees on the, in the course of the regular season were actually kind of middle of the packish in terms of their strikeout rate, and that really zoomed up in the postseason. I think a couple of different things come into play is. Certainly, you give the pitchers credit on the Houston Astros, uh, you know, team, obviously. But I just felt like, you know, that maybe maybe the Yankees offense, they were pressing a little bit and, and trying too hard, especially early in some of those games when the opportunities were there. Um, it just felt like, you know, and in particular, Aaron Judge at the top got out of his zone a little bit in terms of the way his approach is and started chasing a little bit more. He didn't get his normal high on base percentage and his, his walk rate wasn't, wasn't what it normally was. And it seemed like he was the classic caught in between 
you know, behind the fastball ahead of the breaking stuff. And that's when you get that way as a hitter and a pitcher senses that on the mound, that that's when you can really exploit some weaknesses and really go after the hitters and get aggressive. And it felt like the Houston Astros pitching staff as a whole kind of smelled that and really exploited that and went, went really hard after the Yankees in a really aggressive manner. The Yankees not being much of a strikeout team this year, they were 16th in K rate. Uh, same goes for the last six years. They, they haven't, they've been middle of the pack, but in the postseason, when you're facing Cleveland, you're facing Houston, a couple of elite staffs, a couple of great strikeout clubs with great strikeout pitchers, certain guys like an Aaron judge were seeing big jumps in their K rate in the postseason, which is something you didn't see in the regular season. The decisions this postseason by Cleveland and Houston to say, all right, we're going to go directly at Aaron Judge. There was a lot of talk whether or not he was going to or how he was going to be treated in this postseason. What opposing pitching staffs pitched to him? They went right at him. How did that affect the other individuals in the lineup for the Yankees? It had to have an impact. You know, this is a guy who had such a historic regular season. Everybody who's watched the Yankees knows about Aaron Judge's season, one of the best offensive seasons in the history of the game, in my opinion, certainly modern history, top 10 at a minimum. But, yes, I mean, the, the whole lineup fed off of him. So when he went, everybody else seemed to kind of relax and, and follow, follow suit, so to speak. And I've seen that through a lot of teams I've been on it's various various hitters take off and all of a sudden everybody else kind of just relaxes around them it's it's a dynamic that's hard to quantify but without a doubt with the yankees uh you know uh, when when john carlos Stanton in the cleveland series hit the big three run home run early or you know aaron judge hit a big home run in cleveland uh, you could just sense to the, the offense around them kind of just uh lit up a little bit and you know as i said that's a hard thing to to explain but Certainly, um, you know, Aaron Judge is a huge part of the Yankees offense. And the fact that he struggled in the postseason by and large uh, had an impact on everybody else. This, this was a possibility. You wouldn't bet on Aaron Judge to have a stretch like this over 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 games. But in nine games against elite pitching, sure, that this, is, this could have been in play. He hit 139, going five for 36 with two homers and an OPS of 490 uh, that with a strikeout rate of around 40%. Now if you could go back and maybe you could find an, an, a nine game stretch in the middle of the season that wouldn't raise any eyebrows, but in the postseason, everything comes under the microscope a little more. Yep. Everything's magnified. They jump off the page more small sample sizes kind of be damned as well. Uh, it's either do or don't. Right. And uh, you know, unfortunately for the Yankees, it did not happen. Uh, we'll look at the, situations in games three and four a little bit closely in a minute here i think i have one main question after what we witnessed in the alcs because time and time again we hear the playoffs are a crapshoot what have the houston astros done to sort of build themselves as a team for the regular season and the postseason here because they have done a great job at making the playoffs not look like a crapshoot guys yeah, no, I mean, you, you have to uh, go back 10 years, you know, 15 years to look at the building of the Houston Astros and the Sports Illustrated article when they were when they were crashing for five years and, and tanking and getting all those number one picks. So, I mean, it's, it took a long time for Houston to build this up. But once they got the machine running, 
even with all the controversy through uh, the, the cheating scandal and the sign stealing scandal, they still had their system built up to where their scouting, their player development system was feeding this sort of monster that they created. And the latest example is, is, you know, a lot of people thought when Carlos Correa would walk away from that team, that was a huge blow for them. They've got Jeremy Pena waiting in the wings to step in and have the type of year he did in his rookie year and ends up the ALCS MVP. And they're scattered across the diamond. There's, there's examples of that. Kyle Tucker in right field was a homegrown talent drafted high, high draft pick that they developed and certainly the pitching as well. The, the, the way they've developed pitching over there. And I, I guess the prime example of that is when Garrett Cole got traded from Pittsburgh to the Houston Astros, they set him down the first day and presented him with their analytics department readout on his stuff, which pitches he should be throwing and how he was doing it all wrong. And they were dead on. And he was blown away by that. And he started to throw four steamers, started to follow their lead. And he became the type of pitcher that he was capable of becoming. He took it to an entirely different level. And that, that's the system they've had built up over there over the last several years. And they've created a machine that now kind of feeds itself and, Dusty Baker's leading the, leading the way now, and but but the system that they built in terms of uh, top to bottom player development, analytics department, coaching is, is all in place, and it, it all deserves a lot of credit because it keeps feeding them young talent, and they keep making good decisions across the board on who to acquire and and how to spend their money judiciously. They're leading the pack, but I will say there is still that crapshoot element to it because this is their fourth trip to the World Series. In six years, they probably ought to have three titles already because they went into the 2019 World Series against the Washington Nationals as a favorite, and they did not get it done. They lost in seven games in a, in a great, weird series where the road team won every game. And then they probably should have won last year when you're facing a, a, an Atlanta Braves team that had won 88 games during the regular season. So and now we're going to have another World Series where they are far ahead of the Philadelphia Phillies, a 106-win team versus an 87-win team, one of the most lopsided uh, record disparities in World Series history. But you're going to have an Astros club facing another red-hot NL East underdog in the fall class. Great point. I think we felt similarly in 2019 in between championship series and the World Series. I thought the Astros, there's no way that they were going to be losing to what looked like at the time an inferior group in the Washington Nationals. And we know what happened there. So if you have that feeling looking ahead to this series that the Astros cannot be stopped, let the games play out at the very least. But in terms of just overall um, postseason stability, whatever you want to call it, like decisions across the board, off season, in season, roster construction in tight moments in playoff games, they, they dictate the outcomes for a team like the Houston Astros. I wonder guys, when you take a look at the New York Yankees, uh, Yankees here, uh, four games in this series. What decisions, I guess, made you scratch your head the most? Everyone's trying to pick apart something here. Yes. Yeah, so no, I, that's what happens when you, you're a team that's overmatched. You tend to pick apart every little thing because everything had to go perfectly for the Yankees to win. So that, that magnifies every, every small decision. It always comes around bullpen management. A lot of people are talking about, uh, you know, you should have brought in this guy. Why'd you pitch this guy? 
Uh, certainly there is some of that, I think, in game three. And I know the Yes Network covered it well, along with Michael Kay, in terms of the decision-making around certain around Garrett Cole's start and should he have stayed in that game with the bases loaded and nobody out? And why didn't he bring in one of his high-leverage relievers instead Then, if you're going to get rid of Garrett Cole? So we've covered that one quite extensively. Uh, you know, James and I have talked about this. Um, I don't think that game or the series hinged on that decision at all. Bases loaded, nobody out. The run expectancy is closer to two runs given up than no runs given up, obviously. So what did you expect in that situation? You could have brought in Loisega. You could have left in Cole, and he would have given up one run, two runs maybe on average. So, you know, that this thing, the whole thing was centered around the offense. It was centered around the shortstop position, the decision-making, the lineup construction, different every night continual search mode because the Yankees found themselves short both on the lineup side and obviously uh kind of Falefa became an issue in terms of uh, whether or not you know defensively had he was he was a little nervous or made a couple of errors in Cleveland the Cleveland series that forced Aaron Boone to make a decision so you know you could pick apart a lot of little things for, for to me it was a it leaves the questions of who's the shortstop next year going into spring training uh, what happens, you know, let's just assume that Aaron judge gets signed back. That's obviously the elephant in the room before that. Does Brian Cashman get brought back? I think uh, we all think that that answer is probably yes. Um, but, but he's the architect. So you have to make that decision first, the Aaron judge decision right after that. And then, okay, how do we piece this together? And how do we do what Houston did in terms of the, of the Yankees? Who, who's our next guy? Who's our Jeremy Pena? Who's our Kyle Tucker? Who's who's the minor league uh, guys that are going to come up and give us a boost? We saw that this year, how much energy you know, Oswaldo Cabrera brought. Just the energy and the youthful uh, energy that he brought to the team was a real lift. And aside from his production, which is probably around league average, I guess, the James somewhere in that that nature in the, in the small sample size that he brought. Uh, but the, there's something about that youthful energy that Houston has that every team needs, every team wants. And the question for the Yankees is, is, Yes. Uh, you know, how do we piece this together? Who do we trade? Who do we acquire? Who, what about the free agent market aside from judge and then assessing our own talent within the system? It's a big deal. The Yankees traded a lot of uh, prospects, a lot of pitching prospects to make some of those trade trade deadline deals. What's the shape of our pitching in, in the minor leagues? If you're the Yankees and certainly how close is Anthony Volpe and when, and who is our shortstop next year? I think there's a lot of questions, you know, you can sink your teeth into, but, Certainly, uh, the Yankees have, have their work cut out for them. When you lose a postseason series, everything goes back to, well, what if we did this? Well, what if we did that? And a series like the Cleveland series, if you'd lost in five games, everything becomes a little more magnified to say, well, this one decision could have swung the series. In a four-game sweep like this, yes, three of the games were close. I don't really think there's a spot for that. And people looking backwards, well, I, I think that, Maybe the, the one move that made me scratch my head the most was back in game one, but it actually ended up working out. I thought maybe Lou Trevino should have been the guy to come in first out of the bullpen for Jamison Tyone. They go to Clark Schmidt instead. He gets out of it. He gets a break with a great uh, double play to, to get out of a bases loaded jam. And then they left in Clark Schmidt against the, the lowly bottom of the order hitters in the Houston lineup. And they had Trevino. The, the higher leverage, better reliever getting ready to face Jose Altuve and Jeremy Pena and Jordan Alvarez uh, it, when they were coming back around in the lineup. But by then, Schmidt had already given it up to guys like Yuli Gurriel and Chaz McCormick. So that's something where 
you got out of the jam, you stick with him, and that that one move didn't work out. But Trevino coming in in, in game three, he was a, a strikeout ground ball guy with the Yankees. He had a, a 1-4-2 ERA. He was one of the best relievers in the American League over the course of the two months going into the postseason after the trade deadline when he came over from Oakland. So I didn't have a problem with Trevino at all in a big spot. Maybe you could argue Loisaga, but Trevino against those hitters, that's certainly a, a good spot. And he got a sack fly and, and a bloop single. So I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, killing the Yankees over, over that move that let the game get it away when it was already bases loaded, nobody out. And besides, they didn't score any runs. All comes back to that, the offense just not having anything in the tank against superior Houston pitching. Uh, zooming out the shortstop position, David, you mentioned it moments ago. I think that kind of personifies the big picture that a lot of Yankee fans are focusing in on. Because last episode, you talked about Aaron Boone's decision to be able to put in as uh, Oswald Peraza as the shortstop kind of pull the plug on IKF happening now in game, you know, 170 something during, during the season. And if you see that, you can't help but wonder if, you know, if Boone's able to make that decision now, have a role and make that decision, well, why is there that disconnect in the first place somewhere within the organization? Do you believe something there needs to be cleaned up for the Yankees? I don't know about cleaned up. I think you're always going to have a healthy discourse among the decision makers in your organization, whether it's the general manager and everybody down through the coaching staff, the analytics department. There's a lot of internal proprietary data that they go by that we don't get. You know, I love fan graphs. I love baseballreference.com. They're great resources. Public data is amazing. Statcast, baseball savant. I can go down rabbit holes for days and in, in some of these, some of these spots, uh, but it's not quite the same. Each organization is really proud and really protects their own proprietary data. Uh, that's being discussed behind the scenes. And that goes right to the heart of the matter with Isaiah Kiner Falefa in terms of how do you rate his defense and the Yankees swear then, and some of the, even baseball had him in the, the top 10 defensively. Uh, in, in terms of uh, their, their metrics that they use for defense. Now, James knows this very well, that the defensive metrics, just certainly the public ones, can be kind of noisy. There's, there's uh, disparate uh, opinions. And one, one set of metrics rates them very highly. StatCast rates them fairly lowly, or at least in the bottom half of, of, of shortstops. So that's the heart of the matter. I'm sure that discussion was had after the trade deadline. Is Oswald Peraza ready? Uh, we were told in the offseason that he was going to be a stopgap position shortstop until the kids were ready. That's why they didn't sign Carlos Correa or, or anybody else. Trevor Story from the free agent class of shortstops that were abundant last year. So that's the fan that, that you know, that's the only thing I feel bad for Kiner Falefa because he was he was put in an unenviable position because the fan base was told one thing and now he's brought in and. A great guy, well-loved in his teammates, plays hard, got a lot of great qualities. But is he the answer at shortstop? And you're, you're right, Jack, it's dead on. When that, when that decision comes down in the postseason that he's going to get benched, there's probably more to do with his performance in Cleveland where it looked like he was rushing or maybe you know, the, the moment got a little too big for him, and that's usually when Aaron, Aaron Boone steps in and makes a move. 
Uh, and I, I guess that's, you know, that's what he was thinking then at that point, but it just makes you second guess everything. If you weren't sure, if there was some dissension, if the analytics department says he's really good defensively, we like what he brings and the coaching staff or Aaron Boone and the eye test has something different and he doesn't look the part or the instinctually, it doesn't come to him naturally. Um, then you, you got to second guess yourself for not getting Peraza up there sooner and at least getting a look, getting him integrated into the, into the, the system. And, you know, he was brought up in September. It was a little late. He had a good showing, didn't make the division roster. You throw him on in the LCS and now he's got to start in the LCS. That's the second guess. That's what leaves you open for second guessing is that sort of wait a minute here. Why didn't you get him integrated sooner? You had a chance to call him up. He was hot in AAA, got off to a slow start. But certainly you could have made an argument to get him up there and get a look and find out after the trade deadline. That just was done too late. We covered it here on the, on the podcast in one of our episodes about they didn't get him up here soon enough to get him integrated. And that's why he's probably not going to be on the division roster. And he wasn't. You could have gotten him more of a look in September to better assess. Is this someone we can have for this postseason run? But let's also remember that this, wasn't a straight comp for someone like Jeremy Pena. Jeremy Pena spent the entire 2021 season at AAA Sugarland in the Astros system and did extremely well hitting uh, for a 944 OPS and establishing himself as perhaps their shortstop of the future. Oswald Peraza spent most of 2021 at AA Somerset. And in 2022, he didn't really get going at AAA until June or July. So by the time August comes around and he's, you know, getting ready to earn that call up, he doesn't have nearly as much of a, of a sample that you can bank on and say, Hey, this is a guy we can really bank on for a, a postseason stretch run and a postseason run. So maybe you, you give him a little more playing time down the stretch in September when, you know, you, you're, you're pulling away in the division. You can give yourself more of a look to say, well, let's get a let's get a good look at this guy and just play him every day for a couple of weeks and, and see what we have. But absent that, you also don't want to be throwing a guy into the deep end of the pool in the middle of the postseason. And as far as Isaiah Kainer-Falefa goes, he's basically the same player that they had gotten uh, who had been playing for the Texas Rangers over the last couple of years. His OPS plus at the plate with Texas in 2021 was 85. His OPS plus in... New York this year was 84. So he's basically exactly the same uh, hitting wise, about 15% worse than league average. And Coney, like you said, the, some of the defensive metrics uh, say one thing or another, that's because it can often take two or three or four years worth of this kind of data on defensive stats. than you would need on the offensive side, you get a full year of plate appearances on offense and you can get a good sense of a player it might take two or three or four years of that same amount of data to really get a feel for a player i think just just by the nature of their success because it doesn't seem like they're hitting too many potholes now they're like okay we you know we hear that but why why don't the astros experience all, all of that like why is it not you know why is it always working there with in the case of like of jerry jeremy jeremy pena in this situation now um Overall, though, like people are probably splitting hairs whether or not they agree or disagree when Peraza should have been called up, should have been when the Yankees are rolling, allowing him to get his feet wet with not too much pressure, should have been in September when they were 
beating a lot of teams that weren't making the postseason, kind of recovering, distancing themselves in the division, playing him more consistently down the stretch there. Um, and I know, look, as far as Isaiah kind of falefa goes, and a, a, another point there, like what is, you know, the interpretation of what placeholder means at the end of the day? Like everyone, you know, was perceiving that IKF was a placeholder for someone when they were ready. Turned out he was the starting shortstop the entire season. Um, and I was about to say, like, I, I know not too many people care about this, but I just feel like I need to say it. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, um, he gives him a masterclass on how to represent himself in front of microphones, the camera, the New York media. Um, you, can, you can see how much this situation kind of weighed on him throughout the season. And I think he was as honest and forthcoming with his responses when he was under the microscope, the lights were hot. You can say what you want about him as a player, um, but he does a, a terrific job being honest and not a lot of athletes, especially in this sport, for whatever reason, they're not as transparent as a guy like IKF. So through the good and the bad, he did a terrific job. And he said, after game four, you know, he felt like he bounced back after getting benched in the postseason. And he did. It was true. Uh, you know, he made some strong throws to first. Everyone wants to get on him for not maybe having the strongest arm. He quitted himself there. Um, overall, though, I think, you know, a lot of people can take a lot of way, uh, a lot away from a guy like IKF in terms of how he kind of deals with the media here in, in New York. And again, I know that's probably not important to a lot of people, but uh, it, it just definitely jumped out to me interacting with him on a daily basis this season. It's a great point. Well said, Shaq. And a lot of the the stuff that came his way was unfair. It mm -hmm. wasn't his fault. It was circumstances, you know, what the fan base was expecting. It, it just, you know, it, 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 sometimes you get put in unfair positions, especially in major markets in New York in particular. And, you know, that certainly was the case. And uh, yeah, I know there was a, there was a, there was a spot too in the middle of the season where his father was on social media talking about some of the vitriol that, that was coming his way. That was way, way over the top. Uh, and the team rallied around him. They love him. His teammates love him. That tells you a lot about his character. And that, that's well said, Shaq. And, you know, all of our dealings with him, just a great guy, a real asset to any team without a doubt. I think, um, I, I feel like he's got something to offer to any team he's on. I know he's so versatile. He can play so many different positions. I think that's probably his future eventually when, when the Yankees get the shortstop of their future up and ready to go, whether that's Anthony Volpe or, or Oswald Peraza or somebody else. But, but yes, he's a real asset to any organization. And uh, I could not agree more with everything that you said. It's not his fault that he's not Carlos Correa. Exactly. Um, you you, you can debate whether or not, you know, you, you think he belongs on a team like this. Uh, he's a major leaguer for sure. Um, I think also he proved that he's probably not a, a starting shortstop on a championship caliber team, but that does not mean that he can't add value to a team like the Yankees. And I do think he demonstrated that as well. Both things can be true when it comes to a guy like, like that, just the shortstop position and overall how it's evaluated within the organization. Just uh, it's a sensitive subject for sure. It's the position that Derek Jeter played for 20 years. You know, it's a really important position mm -hmm. in all the sports, much less for the Yankees. The shortstop for the New York Yankees is a tough spot to be in.
All right, right, one more before we jump to the NLCS really quick and wrap up this episode. As it pertains to the Yankees, looking ahead of the offseason, where do you start? Obviously, the big money goes in one direction with number 99, but other areas, where, where do you look to uh, tighten the margins here? I think it's going to be similar to last year. And I guess it's it, we can, you can sit down and evaluate last year at this point. It was, you know, Gary Sanchez and, and Urshela. And that big move for Donaldson and Isaiah Kinder Falefa and you know, these sort of creative trades that a lot of GMs are, are looking to make, uh, whether it's uh, trying to, to attach a prospect to a, a high salary that you're trying to get rid of or, or whether you're trying to acquire undervalued pitching and bullpen help. Uh, that seems to be the two areas that, that uh, front offices concentrate on a lot other than just the obvious big free agent signings, whether you're going to spend the money or not. It's these under the radar trades that you don't expect. And you know, I think that's going to be more of the same. It's a, what are the trades they're going to explore? What free agents can they target? And what kind of pitching can they add? Certainly on the bullpen side, because you never have enough as the Yankees know they got, they got cut, they got caught short, you know, in the bullpen through all the injuries that they had. And then what's the status of all those injuries and who can we expect to get back next year? Or who can they expect to get back? So, you know, we can go down the list, but, Right at the top, I thought Michael King was a huge blow to them when he got hurt and after the way he looked in the first half of the season. So those are the decisions that need to be made. And, you know, we mentioned it earlier. At the top of the list is Brian Cashman. I think we all expect him to be back. But nonetheless, his contract's up. And regardless of what Yankee Twitter says or what, what the fan base says, because we haven't won a World Series in forever, uh, Brian Cashman is, is widely considered one of the uh, – the, the best front office people in the game, his experience is second to none. So uh, that decision needs to come from, from the Steinbrenner family, from Hal Steinbrenner. And once that happens, then you know who the architect's going to be. Then we can get into all this other stuff. And Aaron Judge is at the top of the list, obviously. What happens with him impacts uh, everything else in your decision-making. The only thing you can equate it to, and it's not even in the same category, but it, when the Yankees were in the similar situation with Robinson Cano, and Robinson Cano signed the big deal with Seattle. What, what was the reaction to it? What happened in the aftermath? How do you piece this thing together? So do you want to talk about a world where the Yankees don't have Aaron Judge? Well, that, that's a whole different ball of wax in terms of, okay, what do we do now? If Aaron Judge isn't a Yankee, what now? And that, that's a, a whole different architect there in terms of what you, what you try to do to build it from that point on. The comparison to the offseason I, that I was thinking of going in was 2019 to 2020, when Garrett Cole was the, the, the big fish to get in the offseason. And then that was pretty much the, the one move uh, to make, other than, you know, smaller move on, moves on the periphery. This time it's bring back Aaron Judge, and then everything else kind of falls around that. We'll have a lot of time to dissect and detail all of this during the Yankees offseason. The uh, the Astros are moving on, though. They're going to be taking on the Phillies. Game one of the World Series coming up Friday night uh, in Houston. Really quick. You know, we spend all this time on the ALCS. We spend, you know, a moment here on the NLCS before we wrap it up. Um, Phillies win it. A forever moment kind of made yesterday uh, in the rain in Philadelphia. Eighth inning, Bryce Harper hitting the go-ahead home run. A lot of people are wondering why it came up against Robert Suarez over Josh Hader. Two lights-out left-handers here in the postseason for the Padres. Was that a glaring issue for you, David Cohn? Josh Hader standing in the bullpen when that ball went over the wall. 
We, we have heard from Bob Melvin, certainly in, in Sunday Night Baseball and our crew. We talked to Bob Melvin several times this year and including about Josh Hader. And they were convinced, even though the situation was different in postseason, obviously, that he was much better in shorter spurts. He was much better one inning at a time. He's very much a creature of habit. He, he doesn't like the um, he doesn't react well to not knowing exactly what his role is or when he's coming in a game. So with all that being said, uh, Suarez was really good for them all year long. That was the first home run he's given up to a left-handed batter all year long. He's still young and he's still, I mean, you can't give in in that situation of Bryce Harper. You know, the fastball was away, probably uh, you know, thigh high on towards the outside corner, but against a hitter like Bryce Harper, you got to just get him to chase. It's okay. If you walk him and lose him, but you cannot give in to him. And sometimes when you have a young pitcher out there, who's had a lot of success, you know, that they don't really know that lesson all that well. So, you know, we could say Hater should have been in that game. And yeah, that's an easy mark, but you, you also trust your pitchers to know when not to give in to a guy. And I kind of felt like that pitch was given into a guy like Harper a little too much and easy to say, easy to second guess. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Bryce Harper, I mean, that, that just brings up other questions about, you know, uh, Way back when, free agent choices of years past, right? <laughs> Every team's kind of kicking themselves. Bryce Harper is one of the best players in the game, and he's lived up to every penny of that contract. And I guess Joe Davis's call, I don't know, Shaq or, or James would, how would you call that home run? I mean, the swing of his life? And that, pretty interesting call from, from Joe Davis. I'm not giving Joe Davis any tips. Uh, that was <laughs> terrific. Yeah. Great I, job by him. I love that. That was a great call. And uh, Suarez has been a fantastic pitcher for them. Should Hater have been in the game? Yeah, probably. But Suarez is no slouch himself. And the, the bigger picture thing is this is Bryce Harper living up to the hype. Just his entire career, he was the most hyped baseball prospect ever, probably. Mm -hmm. And he's having a Hall of Fame career. He goes to the Phillies. They didn't make the playoffs the last few years with him. Uh, no fault of his. Uh, he's been classic great Bryce Harper, if not even better. Uh, than many of his years in Washington. And then when the lights are brightest with an underdog Phillies team kind of making this run, he is carrying them through October in 11 games, Harper hitting 419 with a 907 slugging percentage, not an OPS. That's a slugging percentage, five homers, 11 RBIs, 10 runs in this 11 game run. And if they're going to do anything against this Astros staff, he's going to be a big part of it. Bryce Harper, got the big contract. He is exceeding expectations. And this is exactly why you break the bank to get a superstar player. Even if you're not at the time, a, a big contending team, why would the Phillies go do this? This is what you get him for. All goes back to what we said. Decisions dictate outcomes. We're not just talking about in a singular season. A lot of teams could have had him. And he's proven that that SI cover was well worth the hype. All the accolades, the two MVP awards. Now he's able to light it up on the big stage, win his uh, team. It's pennant, guide them into the World Series, creating a forever moment in Philadelphia sports history. Just wonderful stuff. Um, uh, what'd you guys think of the bunt in the ninth inning? <laughs> Ow. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't a sacrifice bunt. You know, I, I definitely he was trying to drag it. He just, his technique was off. Uh, I think that's a really, a left-handed batter that was really struggling, had zero confidence against a left-handed pitcher. 
and thought that his best opportunity was try to drag a bump for a hit, get the bases loaded with nobody out. And, and that way he could keep the line moving. But to me, it just screamed out a lack of confidence in this situation. You know, I, I don't like my chances here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to drag this punt, even though base is loaded, you know, in that situation, they're still in a position to get a ground ball, double play, you know, get out of it rather than swinging the bat. One swing of the bat, maybe he gets lucky and hits a home run, you know? So uh, you, you, you look at your, you, you look at the, the fragility of players and the confidence level. Confidence is so fleeting, even among the best players in that situation. Grissom's confidence and against uh, that left-handed pitcher in that spot, just you can just tell. He just, I can't. This is not. This is not the matchup that that I like or that I feel good about. Let me try this. And you know, he didn't execute, uh, obviously. But bunning for a hit, even in that situation, even if he even if he executes and does it well. Does it move the needle all that much? I guess maybe, maybe it does, but not as much as you'd think because one more ground ball after that, it's still a double play. It was, it was mind boggling. Um, and to see Bob Melvin talk about after the game, well, it was maybe a little bit of a hybrid, you know, trying to sacrifice, trying to bunt for a hit. I think that's, that's just a, a manager trying to cover for his guy. Um, it makes you think, well, Maybe against the, the left-hander, maybe that could have been a spot for someone like Jorge Alfaro to pinch hit even rather than just trying to bunt there. Um, the, the thing I thought of in that play was, uh, you probably remember this, Coney winning your first World Series title in 1992, Otis Smith trying to bunt for a hit for the last Nixon, out yeah. of the World Series against Mike Timlin uh, in I'll 1992, uh, Braves Blue Jays there. So uh, it, it was a little bit of a head scratcher, but like you said, left, left, it's a, it's a tough spot for Grisham. And like you said, the confidence, uh, maybe thinking, Hey, maybe the only way I can really get something going here is to bunt my way off. Exactly. Yeah, the right. So the Phillies, uh, they do it. They win the pennant. Congrats to, uh, to Rob Thompson there. Um, something that I just thought of here was a game, was a game three or four where Sir Anthony Dominguez is picking up the, the six outs. All the days are blended together at this <laughs> right. moment. Right. Game three. It was yes. game three. Okay. Game so three, two innings. Yes. When, yeah. When you have that kind of that, that mentality of worrying about the next game, the next day, try and picking up the win that's in front of you, that situation, when it contrasts to some other decisions, other fans may have seen from other teams uh, this postseason, how much of that is a credit to uh, the manager with that mentality or the manager knowing his players. A little bit of both, the general manager and the manager. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to just backtrack real quick. There, you know, there's a former major league pitcher, Brian Bannister on Twitter. Find him on Twitter if you can. He's got a great reputation in the game. He worked with Dave Dombrowski with the Phillies. He had a great Twitter thread on Dave Dombrowski and the decision-making behind him. You know, he, he's, he's sort of the guy they bring in to win a world championship, and they say, well, he tears up your farm system, and then he leaves you with nothing. You know, that's, that's definitely not true by the way, but nonetheless, the, the, the gist of the conversation, this leads to the managerial change. Obviously when he let Joe Girardi go and, and Rob Thompson, what a great story that is for the Phillies, but um, knowing your personnel, trusting your personnel. And with Dave Dombrowski, I mean, the, the point that Brian Bannister was making was uh, he believes in blue chip personnel. He believes in, you know, signing, extending yourself for, for these type of players, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Bryce Harper or, or Castellanos, or some of the moves he's made over the years, um, that you know, that pays off in the big run. That, that 
you know, yeah, there's risk involved. There's always risk reward. And if you're a general manager who's parsing every trade, I've got to win every trade or economically, I didn't win this trade. So I'm not going to make this move or this free agent costs too much. And on the back end of the deal, I'm going to get killed on the back end of the deal. If you keep waiting around for these kind of moves, you won't have that moment that they just had in Philadelphia. That moment for that city and that franchise that they just had is worth everything. That's why you play the game. That's why you, for those kind of moments. So that's why you spend the money. That's why you take the chances that Dave Dombrowski's taken his whole career. That's why he's going to the Hall of Fame as an executive, because he took chances. He believes in blue chip players. He believes in allowing his manager and his, his personnel to do their jobs, but yet he's still there to support every step of the way. So if you're interested in that sort of a thread from somebody who worked with Dave Dombrowski, look up Brian Bannister on Twitter and check out that thread on Dave Dombrowski. It's pretty long, but it's really, really good to see his perspective. And, and it's, a, it's actually instructive moving forward, you know, no matter which fan base you are, including the Yankees here, moving forward and, and reading the years past, what decisions could have been made that weren't made, moving forward, the decisions that are going to be made. What is the criteria behind the decisions? Do you have to win every trade? Does every free agent deal have to be have to make sense? You know, in in the in the face of Aaron Judge being a free agent right now, you know, it it, it kind of bears the question. You know, hey, uh, do we have to extend ourselves a little bit? What's the right thing for the franchise? Well, they're greasing the poles in Philly last night, so they don't climb up the poles. And it still Philly. didn't work. <laughs> yes. So you know that that moment is worth everything. It just is. And if you if you if you if you don't think that you're probably in the wrong business. Mm -hmm. Bannister said, by always waiting patiently for smart trades or avoiding larger free agent contracts, it admittedly reduces career risk and public scrutiny. But by being willing to lose a trade slightly at times from a valuation perspective, it often gives you access to special players. Dave believes that players with a proven track record have special qualities and will rise to the occasion, especially in the postseason. I think that's the key right there. The, the desire to be or look right with every decision shouldn't take precedence over winning games. And that's what you have with Dave Dombrowski right here. He's not afraid to lose moves for the overall bigger picture. I, I think he's carved out a hall of fame career as an executive over, over the, the life of his career and all the places he's been and the work he's done. And this just, you know, this is like cements it taking Philly, to the world series this year. And, and in the face of, you know what, at the beginning, Hey, this team is just, uh, wait a minute. It's all slug. There's not enough defense. Wait, what is Dombrowski doing? Uh, well, what he's doing, he's going to the world series. That's what he's doing. And credit to ownership for going for it. When a lot of people might have thought that they were too far behind or what have you invest in the team, get the return. We're going to preview game one and the rest of the World Series between the Phillies and the Astros coming up later this week ahead of game one. Always a great job uh, by you guys here. And uh, I know we, you know, all of us put in a lot of work with like with the Yankees situation. So it was uh, important to, to kind of get a quick reaction on the state of this team, where they fell short overall, their trajectory now heading into uh, the off season, but the focus now is on this fall classic uh, game one coming up on Friday. We'll preview it for you, especially from that pitching standpoint before the first game. Um, one thing right off the bat still with what, four days to go, anything that uh, you two are kind of salivating over when it, when it comes to the first game of this fall classic or just the world series matchup overall. 
Well, both teams have great starting pitching, certainly uh, at the top of the rotation. Both teams, uh, you know, have enough time to get them lined up. There's plenty of off days leading up to the first game. So, yeah, it's going to be great to look at superstars at work. You know, I, that was what was on display with, with the Padres Phillies. Uh, even though it was a five and six matchup in terms of seeds, there were superstars all over the field and then they played well. Everybody played well. Soto played well. Machado played well. Bryce Harper was great. Uh, Reese Hoskins, uh, the list goes on and on. Schwarber, you know, just big names, big stars, big talent all over the field, everybody playing well. And to me, that's what you dream of as a player. You know, the last thing I wanted when I was in those positions was to have like the Yankees have the type of series they had. Even if you get swept, you want a guy's playing well. I hate the fact that Aaron Judge struggled in that series and the Yankees. I just want to see action and good games and made the best team win. The last thing you want is like a Bill Buckner moment or a goat or somebody to blame. That was my worst nightmare going in as a player is to worry about that sort of situation. And, oh, my God, am I going to be, uh, you know, Dennis Eckersley giving up the home run to Kirk Gibson, you know, even though even though that's part of the play and that's a big play. But, you know, that that's probably the disappointing part about the Yankees was, you know, the, the guys didn't play the way they're capable of playing. Cleveland, I mean, uh, Houston was a better team. You just want to see good good games. And that last game, game four, was a good game. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a very good baseball game, even though the, the air at second base was probably the, the, the determining factor in that game. But nonetheless, both teams played well. And that that's kind of what you hope for. I think that's what we're going to see with, with Houston and Philly. Both teams playing well, superstars, good pitching matchups, and, you know, one of the, some, best, some of the best players in the game. Alvarez and Harper, two of the best, two of the best, two left-handed sluggers in the game. It's going to be fun to watch those two guys go at it. Stars all over the field, like Coney said. And the interesting thing is that there is going to be this layoff for both teams. Both teams clinch the pennant on Sunday. The World Series begins in Houston on Friday. So even for the Phillies, there you could you could have Zach Wheeler start back-to-back games for you. There's that many. There's four days off in between. So there's no starting rotation set quite yet but we could have Justin Verlander against Zach Wheeler and then Aaron Nola against Framber Valdez in the first two games of the World Series, just for example. You can line them up any way you want from a pitching perspective. It's going to be very, very juicy to start off this uh, fall classic. That's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please rate, review, subscribe. For our terrific producer, Dan Work, David Cohn, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle. We'll be back with you later this week with another episode of Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It is a production of John Boy Media. Take care, everybody.